Mark chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. When you have that, if you'll stand with me in reverence to God's word this morning. The Bible says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gersenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he is saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country, and people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had, been, uh, who had had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away. And began to proclaim the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. You may be seated. In chapter 4 of Mark's Gospel, which we have looked at previously, we, we had a number of accounts of Jesus' teaching. And now Mark returns us as we continue on through his gospel, he returns us to a narrative account of Jesus' interaction with this demon-possessed man. Apparently, this man had been possessed by an evil spirit for quite an extended period of time. There's backstory that Mark gives us about this man and his condition, how he had went through this this demon possession, and they had tried to bind him with chains. They, they didn't know what to do with him. They didn't know how to handle him, but it had gotten to the point where no one could do that anymore. No one could bind him. No one could stop him from hurting himself. No one could stop him from running around these tombs and, and, and cutting himself and yelling and screaming. And it, it was just a sight that no one wanted to be around and no one knew what to do with. And yet we have for a second account in a row, first Jesus calming the storm and now with this one, that Jesus' actions in transforming a situation causes the people around him to be greatly afraid. Remember, when Jesus calms the storm, they go from being afraid of the storm to being afraid of of what had taken place, that Jesus had spoken and the storm had been calm. And so now... These people who witness what happened to this man, they go from being afraid of him because no one can bind him, no one can stop him, he can break the chains, he can break the shackles, he can get away from anyone's attempt to subdue him, to being afraid when he is sitting at the end of this section of Mark chapter 5. They're afraid of the fact that now he's clothed, which would implicate before he wasn't fully clothed. 
Now he is fully clothed and in his right mind, and they're afraid. No one knows what to do with Jesus. He's kind of like this man in the sense that, that no one can seem to bind him or stop him. His, his, his authority seems to be growing. His followership seems to be growing. And no one knows what to do with him. Who is this man? As Mark chapter 4 asked. Who, who is this guy who can do these things? This morning as we look at this text, I want us to look at it from the perspective of what happens to this demon-possessed man and how it relates to us. Because quite frankly, there is little difference between us and this man. They say, Pastor, you've been stuck inside too long this week with all the ice and the snow. You say, I'm nothing like this man. I don't run around graveyards cutting myself and yelling. It may be true. I hope that's the case. If not, you have probably deeper issues than I am qualified to deal with. We can get you some help. But in the end, though, though you may not run around graveyards, though you may not run around with a lack of clothing on, yelling out and cutting yourself, and having the strength to break through the chains with which people try to bind you, I want to point to all of us this morning, as we walk through this text, how we are very much like this man, and how we have the great opportunity to have our story end much like this man's does. So as we begin in verse 1, we see that Jesus and his disciples have went to a place that is different for them than most of the places that they minister throughout the Gospels. They have come to this place that's referred to as the country of the Gersenes. Now, this is a place as they have traveled there across the sea. This is a place that is different because the demographics of this country are different than most of the places that people, uh, most of the places that Jesus ministered. See, for the most part, Jesus ministers among his own people. He ministers among the Jewish people. But here, as he's come to this place, he's come to a Gentile audience. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, for the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, the descendants of Abraham, they had nothing to do with Gentile people. It was understood that the Gentile people were simply unclean. You wanted nothing to do with them. You didn't fellowship with them. You didn't talk with them. You didn't have uh, family members that were them. You didn't marry into the, the Gentiles. The Gentiles, for the Jewish people, was everybody who wasn't Jewish. Everybody who was not a part of the lineage of Abraham, they were Gentiles and they were unclean. You had nothing to do with them. And there was an understanding among the Jewish people that the Gentiles simply had no part in God's plan. They had no part in the hope that would come from the Messiah. They weren't part of God's chosen people. They worshipped false gods and false idols. And so here Jesus intentionally goes to those people who had no relationship with God. And that's where this story takes place. And it's important to know that context because he wasn't just dealing with the religious people like he had done so often. But here he's dealing with people who, for the most part, would have no context about the things of God. You know, when he's back in Jerusalem and he's, he's working with people there and he's talking to people and teaching people there, they would have known the Old Testament. They would have known about the promises of God. They would have had some type of relationship with God. These people would not be in that case. And that's why it's so important because by the end of our story, by the end of uh, this section of scripture that we're looking at, this man is sent to have an impact on the very people that Jesus originally comes to minister to. So he goes to the country of the Gersenes, and that's where everything begins to unfold. So what we see first, beginning in verses 2 through 5, is we see that sin has consumed this sinner. 
Sinners are consumed by sin. Now you say, well, that's, that's pretty obvious. Wouldn't sinners be consumed by sin? But look at what sin has done to this man's life. At one point, he may have been an upstanding citizen. He may have been what you and I would refer to as normal. But at some point in this possession by this legion of demons, he becomes this crazy lunatic who is living in the tombs and is cutting himself, is harming himself, is screaming at everyone that goes by. No one can bind him. He breaks the shackles to pieces in verse 4. Night and day in verse 5, he's among the tombs and on the mountains crying out and cutting himself with stones. What we see in this man is sin's complete corruption. Because sinners are consumed by sin. See, what we see on the outside of this man is what sin does to us on the inside. What the demons bring out of this man and allow the world to see so that everyone around him understands that there's something wrong with him, that he is, that he is crazy, that he's out of his mind, that, he's, that he's, he's stark raving mad. What the world can see on the outside in this man is what is going on in the inside of every sinner. Because see, the, the thing about sin is it often allows us on the outside to put on this this good face, this this upstanding way about ourselves where people think that we're okay. But on the inside, sin corrupts completely. And it destroys everything about us. It destroys our heart. It destroys our mind. It messes up our ambitions. It messes up our relationship with God. It messes up our relationship with others, with our spouse, with our children. It it messes up everything. It completely and utterly destroys everything. And what we get what we get a glimpse of with this man as he is there on the mountains and in the tombs and he is he is yelling and cutting himself and, and everyone can see it, we get a glimpse of what is going on on the inside of sinners. Because sinners are consumed by sin. See, when we look around us, we, we probably don't associate hardly anyone with this. We, we wouldn't think about hardly anyone that we know personally, definitely not anyone that we have a, a friendship with, no one that we, that we love and care for, another one, no one that we spend time with. They don't act like this, because if they did, we probably wouldn't do it. You know, in our society, we have, we have places for people to go who are in this condition. You know, so that they're kind of tucked away from everything and not, so you don't have to deal with them. If you have a, a family member who's like this, you know, you probably don't talk about them a lot. That's just the way our society kind of works. It's infinitely worse in, in other societies of the world where, where someone like this is often taken out and they're just, they kill them. You take other types of things where people are different. You know, you take other countries of the world where children are born with, with handicaps that in our country we've got to the point where it's, it's not a big deal. We have, we have treatment for that. We can help them. We can, they can have normal lives in other parts of the world. They just they kill them because they don't know how to handle it. They don't know what to do with it. Or their religious belief has some type of idea where those children are, are less they're less important. But someone like this, we just, we just don't know what to do with. But the reality of sin is that without Christ, while these things may not show themselves on the outside, this is how we are on the inside. Our heart is, is corrupt. Our heart is possessed. Sin owns our heart and it directs our, our being, it directs who we are and what we do and where we go. And this is what has happened to this man. He is totally led about by these demons. The, the, the original guy there is gone. You can't find it anymore. He may sort of look like himself on the outside, but, but, but what has happened on the inside has taken over everything. And that's what sin does to us. It corrupts completely. You and I need to be very careful in how we understand 
what sin does to us and to others. Because we try to have this this scale where we can say, well, this person is not as bad as that person. Or or our country, we, we don't do things quite as bad as other people. And we try to point toward others and we try to point toward the worst and because we're not the absolute worst we 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 think we're okay but the fact of the matter is whether it's someone in Eichard or someone who is a part of a terror cell in the Middle East without Christ sin corrupts both completely and without Christ neither one has hope and we might say, well, well, we understand that those, those terrorists over there, they've allowed everything inside to come out. And they're doing the awful things that are in their mind and in their heart. All the hatred that is there, they're allowing it to come out. And we can watch it on television. We can see the horrific things that they do. Surely we're not as bad as they are. But see, what God demands is not that we be better than terrorists. God demands perfection. Would you do that with your children? Would you ever say in a conversation with another parent, you know, my hope is that my kids are better than the terrorists. If they're just a little bit better than the terrorists, I did a good job raising them. I don't have my glasses on. I can't see if you're shaking your head yes or no. But if you're shaking your head yes, it's very disappointing. I feel good because my kids are going to turn out better than yours because you just want them to be a little bit better than a terrorist. We want the best for our kids, right? We want them to be the best. We want them to do the best. We want them to take full advantage of what we offer them. We want them to take full advantage of their intellect and their upbringing. We want them to take full advantage of that. We want our children to have it better and be better than we are. Well, if that's the high standard we have for our children, imagine the standard that God has for His creation. And His standard is perfection. That's why the Bible tells us that we all fall short of that perfection. Which is why we have the need for a relationship with Christ. Because he's the only one that that lived up to God's standard of perfection. But we are prone to saying, well, the people that we know, the people that live in Eichard, the people that live in Eastern Burke County, the people that live in North Carolina or the United States, we're not quite as bad as other people, so we're probably okay. But see, what we're able to see from this man's life is that sin corrupts completely. In every facet of our life, in our body, in our mind, in our soul, sin corrupts us completely. And until we understand that, we're never going to have the heart like Jesus has for this man. Because if we think people can be okay just because they, where they live, or okay just because they're not as bad as some other people, we'll never have an urgency to share with them the good news of what Christ has done for them. The good news that Christ was perfect in their place. The good news that His sacrifice is perfect for them and gives them access to God, even though they are not perfect. Because here's the truth of what the Bible tells us. You take the most horrific of sinners that you watch on television and something that they've done that is utterly reprehensible. Christ accepts them if they repent. But the man or woman who lives in Eichard, who lives a pretty good moral life and never turns to Christ, is still punished eternally in judgment. And we may not like that. You may not think that's fair. That's irrelevant. The Bible tells us that we are all sinners. Sin has corrupted all of us completely And we are fully dependent on repenting and believing in Christ. Whether that sin stays in our heart and never hardly comes out for anyone to see, or whether it's displayed prominently on television, we're all called to repent. 
And we see in this man's life what sin has done. But look what happens. Because he doesn't, he doesn't stay there. Sinners are consumed by sin. But look, as we look in verses 6 through 13, we see that Jesus redeems the heart of sinners. Sinners are consumed by sin, but Jesus redeems the heart of sinners. Look at this. Jesus cast out the demon from this man. When he saw Jesus, this is verse 6, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. He runs to Jesus. Jesus is coming toward him and he runs to Jesus. And crying out with a loud voice, is verse 7, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I jury you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. This this man is confronted by Jesus. See, these demons understand, even when no one else around does, the demons understand exactly who Jesus is. There's never a question when we encounter the New Testament at any point in the Gospels. There's never any question in the demon's mind who Jesus is. Now, there's a lot of debate about why they would say his name why they would try to, to, to get him to do things when obviously Jesus is not going to do anything for these demons. But the fact of the matter is, when Jesus appears, this guy who has had complete, or these demons rather, who have had complete and utter control of this man, they fall down before Jesus and they ask that he wouldn't torment them. And so Jesus inquires of the demon what his name is. He says, we're legion for we're many. So not only has this man been tormented, but he's been tormented by many demons. We don't have many, but it's enough that later on, a couple thousand pigs go running into the sea when the demons come out of this man. See, what Jesus does is he redeems this man's heart. See, this man's heart has been controlled by these demons. And because his heart has been controlled by these demons, he is doing all of these things that had manifest themselves physically. He's running around in the tombs and he's cutting himself and he's yelling and he doesn't have clothes on and he's, he's, just, he's just completely possessed. But it starts with his heart and his heart being possessed. And so... The demon asks this strange question. He doesn't want to be kicked out of the the country. He's he's working there in this place where God's presence isn't. He's working in this place where God's people aren't. And so Jesus gives him permission to go into these pigs. But then the pigs rush down this steep bank into the sea and they die. It's very bizarre. They're destroyed because the pigs run down in the water. And again, this is how we can know that this is a Gentile area because the the Jewish people wouldn't have had pigs as part of their diet or part of the things they would not eat in their diet. And so Jesus sees this man and he sees the torment that he's going through. He sees the the difficulty that he has had in, in, in being possessed by these demons and the physical effects. Remember, the guy is living outside. He is cutting himself. He's not wearing clothes. And so the physical effects of sin on him are very easy to witness. And so Jesus, in his compassion on him, removes the demon from him, sends the demons into these pigs, and they run off into the sea and they drown. Even though the demon wants to maintain a foothold in this area, he wants to continue working in this country, Jesus ends up not allowing it. Because they run into the, the ocean and they drown. Jesus redeems the heart of sinners. See, we understand from looking at this man's life that, that sin has, has corrupted him. Sin has brought him low. Sin has destroyed who he is. But Jesus has the ability and the desire to redeem the hearts of people who are owned and possessed by sin. 
See, we look at these people sometimes. I'm guilty of this. I'm making the assumption that you're guilty of this. We look at people sometimes and we just, we don't see a lot of hope. We, we look at, at what they've done. We, we look at, at where they've been. We look at a number of things in their life and we just, we just don't see a lot of hope. You know that they've been in church at various points in their life, or you know that people have have tried to to minister to them and witness to them, and they keep rejecting it. They continue to live in their sin, and you don't see a lot of hope. I'm the only one, at least. I know I'm guilty of that. Because it's just a lot of people who are deeply rooted in sin, and you just don't see a path out for them. You just don't see how they're going to get out of this, how they're going to work their way out of this. They've, they've tried everything. They've tried uh, the programs. They've tried uh, to go through all the processes. They've, they've tried and they failed time and time again, and they just seem to really love being stuck in the sin that they're in. They enjoy the pleasures of sin, and they do not worry about the consequences. That's what had happened to this guy. Remember, they tried to bind him up. It gotten to the point where they couldn't. Nobody could do anything with him anymore. They've just left him out there. Nobody's taking care of this guy. Nobody's worried about it. As a matter of fact, I would imagine that at this, this point, his family is just waiting for that time when somebody's going to come by and say, Hey, we found him. He's dead. He finally killed himself. He finally, he finally got attacked by an animal and died. Whatever it was, he's dead. They probably prepared themselves for that. Because what could you do? What could you do with a guy? You can't even bind him up with chains. You can't even put him in shackles. Nobody can do anything with him. And that's where we get so often with people. We get to the point where we just we can't do anything more. We can't invest any more time in them. We can't give them any more hope. They're, they're taking away our time. They're taking away our patience. We can't deal with them because they are stuck in their sin and they love it. And what are we supposed to do about it? From the beginning, we should have remembered that it wasn't us, but it's the fact that God redeems the heart of sinners. We couldn't have done it anyways. There was no program that was going to do it. There was no action plan that was going to fix this guy's problem. There were no chains that were going to hold him. What was happening to him was something beyond the control of the people around him. And they had no ability to fix it on their own. They had no ability to do anything else. What they needed to remember in that time, but they did not know, was that Jesus redeems the heart of sinners. So for us, we we don't need to stop praying. We don't need to stop acting. We shouldn't. We can't stop praying. We can't stop acting. We can't continue to encourage people to try to help them out. Because in the end, it is Jesus who can redeem the heart of sinners. It's not us. I think it's why we get burnt out sometimes when we're working with people who are stuck in sin. We're people that are hurting. We, we, we struggle along with them and we get frustrated and we get burnt out because we fail to realize that it will not be us that changes their heart. But if their heart is to be changed, it will be Jesus who does it. We want to do it desperately. We want to get their hearts changed because it would be so much better for them if their heart was changed. It would be so much better for us if their heart was changed. It would be so much better for their family if their heart was changed. But we need to remember that it's Jesus who redeems people's hearts. You know, thinking about the trip that we're going on. And... and week after next. It's the reminder that I've got to have as we go. We're going to a place of hard hearts. Oh, I have no doubt if it's like many places that I've traveled like this, you, you go and because you're an American, there will be a number of people who want to sh- show up and, and hear you preach and, and things are really promoted like that. But in the end, it will be Jesus who changes hearts. 
There are people in that area who are stuck in, in sin, and it involves drugs, and it'll take Jesus to change their heart. There are people who are stuck in that area who have wrong beliefs about Jesus, and it'll take him to change their heart. And there are people who are stuck in a cycle of violence, and it'll take Jesus to redeem their heart. It will not take four men from America, but it takes Christ. Because Jesus redeems the heart of sinners, and he does so with this man. He redeems his heart. He casts out the demon. They are cast into the pigs, and they run down into the sea. Jesus redeems his heart. And look what happens. As soon as his heart is redeemed, verses 14 through 17, we see that redemption brings about transformation. The sinner was consumed by sin. Jesus redeems his heart. And now redemption brings about transformation. Look, beginning in verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 14. And the herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country, and people came to see what had just happened. So they witness all of this, and I'm sure you and I would have done the same. It's, it's crazy what has happened. These pigs, there's the crazy guy, and he's screaming, and he's hollering, and nobody knows what to do with him. And all of a sudden, then Jesus speaks to him, and now all these pigs, they go nuts, and they run down to the sea, and they all drown. Now think about this sight. This is what Mark wants us to see, this visual sight, this this horrific thing of all of these pigs falling into the sea and and drowning. So they go and they tell, and they came to Jesus, verse 15, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed, everyone was grateful for that, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Jesus redeems this man's heart. And it causes such a stir. Everyone runs. They run into town. They run and gather people. They want people to know what has happened. They want people to come and see what Jesus has done. And when they return, they see this man. And he's in his right mind. Clothed. Sitting there. Remember now, this man's life was marked by running around. He's running around the tombs. He's running around on the mountain. He's screaming. He's cutting himself. And they come and he's calm. He's sitting. Maybe he's having a conversation with Jesus. He looks like a normal person. All the stuff that had happened, it just seems to have melted away. When Jesus redeems someone's heart, it brings about transformation. See, oftentimes we have this misconception that people need to be transformed and then they can be redeemed. They need to be transformed. Whatever sin you've got in your life, whatever vice that you partake in, if if that was simply transformed and was gone, then your heart would be ready to be redeemed. If you've got a problem in your relationships of not loving, if you would just love then you'd be ready to be redeemed. Whatever sin problem you have, if you're just transformed from that and delivered from that, you could be redeemed. But it's not the case at all. Because you have to be redeemed to be transformed. Your heart has to be consumed by Christ. You have to repent from the sin that you're doing and and believe in Christ to then be transformed. Imagine if Jesus had went to this man and said, Now, if you will stop running around the tombs and put some clothes on and cut your hair and trim your beard and get yourself straightened up, then you and I can have a conversation. If you'll stop yelling and cutting yourself, you and I can have a conversation about your redemption. That would have been ridiculous, right? I mean, can you imagine having that conversation with this man? He's drooling and spitting and yelling and, and cutting himself, and you're like, Sir, if you'll just calm down, we can fix this. Sir, if you'll just, it's not going to work, right? 
it took the fundamental transformation of his heart before his life could then be transformed. It took the redemption of his heart before his life was going to be turned around. And see, the church has too often got that in the wrong order. We expect people to clean up their lives, get themselves straightened up, and then they're good enough to come to church. We want them to get, get better, to do some self-help type stuff, you know, maybe read their Bible at home, and then they're ready to come here, and it's why so many don't. Because they have tried and tried and tried and tried to get their lives straightened out, and it's never worked. They've never been able to get their lives straightened out. They've never been able to do it on their own. They've never had the support to help them. And we sit back as Christians and go, I wonder why they won't come to church. I wonder why they won't get their lives straightened out. When what they need first is the redeeming power of the love of Christ, and then that brings about transformation. Now, I want to, as a side note, mention to you, too, that the flip side is also true. Don't say to Christians, to others, that you've been redeemed and have no transformation in your life. People do that to me all the time. Because I'm a pastor, I'm supposed to be nice about everything and believe everything everybody says. I've got gullible written on my forehead. You know, I fell off the turnip truck yesterday type thing. When our hearts are redeemed, there will be transformation. Now, I'm not saying we're going to be perfect. But when Christ redeems our heart, he transforms our lot. He didn't redeem this man's heart. For this man to continue running around these tombs and cutting himself and yelling and breaking chains and not wearing any clothes. When Christ transforms our heart, he transforms our life. Oh, it can be a slow process. It can be one, as a matter of fact, it is one that takes the rest of our life. Because he is constantly molding us and shaping us into his image. But friends, if Christ has transformed your life, or transformed your heart, redeemed your heart, he's going to transform your life as well. So it always amazes me the number of people that will come and tell me that they are Christians, that they believe in Christ, that they have been saved. And for some reason, God is failing to transform their life. It's not the way it works. But we as Christians need to to get away from this notion that somehow people have got to get their lives cleaned up before they come to Jesus. Jesus wants people with dirty and filthy lives, lives that have been ruined and tore apart by sin. That is who Christ is looking to redeem. And then he will do the transformation. He will make them into his image. But we can't do that before they've been redeemed. This man's life is completely transformed. But the people are not happy about it. And that too often happens to us. Look at this. They're afraid. They want Jesus to leave. Kind of like in the parable of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son comes back home and his dad runs out to him and welcomes him. His dad prepares a feast for him and a party. You've got his other brother who's standing there and he's just mad. Why would dad take such good care of this brother who spent all of our money? Why would dad take such good care of this one who has left us and abandoned us and squandered everything that we had? We're like that sometimes. We see someone's life changed and transformed. Their heart is redeemed. Their life is being renewed and made into something other than what it used to be. And we get unhappy about it. We want God to do that for us. And yet what Christ wants us to know 
is that when he redeems our heart, he transforms our life. And when he redeems other people's heart, he's going to transform their life. And some people, their lives are going to be so radically transformed that it's just going to naturally draw people in. Who is this guy? This is the crazy guy running around in the tombs. He's cutting himself, and now look how different he is. We need to be excited when redemption brings transformation. Because transformation leads to something else, and this is where we begin to close. Verse 18 through 20, we've seen that sinners are consumed by sin, and Jesus redeems the heart of sinners. But redemption brings transformation, and this is what transformation does. Transformation is at the heart of our testimony. Transformation is at the heart of our testimony. Look, beginning in verse 18. As he was getting in the boat, Jesus is leaving. He's honoring their wish that he would leave the region. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. He wants to go with Jesus. It's pretty amazing. Remember, he he has been rejected by everyone else. He's been living out in the tombs. He's been living on the mountains. No one is his friend. No one is his family. No one loves him. And he's found one who does. And he says, I want to go with you, Jesus. I want to be with you. In verse 19, he did not permit him. Jesus didn't let him go. He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Now think about this. The word friends here has got to be loose. I mean, growing up, we all had a crazy friend. Right? We all had a crazy friend, I would think. Everyone can kind of pinpoint something. You had that crazy friend. But at some point, you came to realize maybe that the crazy friend, the one who did all this stuff, maybe the one who never would grow up, the one who ended up getting himself in trouble, maybe he wasn't quite as much of your friend as you, know, you really thought. This man, friends, got to be a loose term here. But Jesus tells him to go and to be with his friends and to tell them, into verse 19, how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. This man's transformation becomes the heart of his testimony to others. He's sent by Jesus to share what the Lord has done for him. He wanted to be with Jesus. That's a good thing. But at some point, all those who are with Jesus, Jesus sends out. Think about this. He does it with his disciples, correct? They're with him. They spend time with him. He trains them. He invests in them. But at some point, he sends them out. As a matter of fact, what this man doesn't know was that at some point Jesus was going to leave them to go be with his heavenly father, and then they would have the task to do exactly what this man is charged to do here. And the truth of the matter is, this man has an amazing effect. We'll see that later on in Mark's gospel as we continue traveling through, but, but Jesus later returns to this very same place. And he finds people who knows who he is. How's that possible? How would they know? This man is obedient. This man takes what Jesus has done for him, the transformation of his heart, the transformation of his life, and he begins to share that with people all around him. He begins to share that with his, his friends. He begins to share that with the people uh, in his country, and he begins to have an effect on them. As a matter of fact, the end of verse 20, and everyone marveled. They remembered this guy. They remembered where he had been. They remembered when he was living in the tombs and living on the mountain and yelling and cutting himself. They remembered all of that, and now they marvel that it is Jesus who has fundamentally transformed his life. I imagine this story was not hard for him to tell. I imagine that he did not need a time of focused training 
in some type of six-week program to share his testimony. He didn't need somebody to train him to go tell. He didn't need his pastor to be with him to tell this story. He didn't need his Sunday school teacher to to provide week in and week out training on how to share that I used to live in the tombs and run around naked and cut myself and now look at me. See, the transformation that God has done in our life is the core foundation of our testimony to a world that is lost and dying and needs to know about Jesus. Your story may not be nearly as cool as his. You all know what I'm talking about. If you've been to any type of of, uh, Christian conference or revival or something like that in your life, you've probably heard someone get up and give their testimony. And some of them are awesome. I mean, they're cool. This one is cool. If you you had this guy sharing at your event, he was sitting there, you maybe had him in a little chair right in the middle of the stage, and he was pouring this out, man, everybody would be crying, it would be perfect. You say, Pastor, I just don't have that. Pastor, the Lord's done a lot for me, but I I was not running around naked in graveyards. That's good. We all appreciate that. You know, when I was 11 years old, First Baptist Church of Taylorsville, North Carolina, vacation Bible school, I remember at the end of one particular evening of the vacation Bible school, the pastor, Dr. David Bone, who has since passed away, stood and gave an invitation if you wanted to be saved. Christ loved you. If you wanted to be saved, come talk to him. And I remember walking up the aisle and around the side and back, and there were some steps, and you went up, and there's a conference room. And I don't know how I remember that because I didn't go to church there, just happened to be there for VBS. They had a little conference room, and he sat there and led me to Christ. I was 11. I hadn't robbed any banks. I hadn't killed anybody. I was not drinking or doing drugs. Christ saved me. Later that fall in November, I was baptized, my sister and I, on the same day, in front of East Hellsville Baptist Church. Gary Jennings was the pastor there then, since retired, and he baptized me. At 13, at Centrifuge at North Greenville University, I was called into the ministry just two years, less than two years after having been saved. I remember going to the front, and you can, you can still go there. I don't think they've changed the chapel in the front. And there was a stage kind of like this one. I remember kneeling down right there and very vividly God calling me to the ministry. What was really cool is a number of years later when I graduated with my master's, I walked across the same stage where God had called me to the ministry with my master's degree. It's my testimony. And God in that redeemed my heart and transformed my life. And it's still, if you know me, a work in progress. There's good days and there's bad days and it goes up and down. And sometimes I feel really close to Christ and sometimes I feel far away. But God redeemed my heart and transformed my life. And he has called me, as he called this man, to go home to your friends and tell how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And I get the privilege to do that every Sunday when I stand here and preach this wonderful word to you. But the fact of the matter is that if Christ 
has redeemed you from your sinful heart and transformed your life, you also have a powerful testimony to tell a world that is lost and dying. Because the world around us does not know Christ. They have never heard of Him. They don't know what He is doing in your life. They don't know how He has changed your life. Whether you were a small child or an adult, when He changed you and saved you, He transformed your life. So you don't have to be specially educated to go and share the good news of Christ with someone. You don't have to have been through an extensive training. As a matter of fact, I've been through a bunch of those trainings and I don't remember any of them. I don't have any of them memorized. I can't rattle them off. But I can tell you what Christ has done for me. And I can tell you what he's done for you. Because see, you are very much like this man. Consumed by sin. It owns you. It may have not manifested itself on the outside, but on the inside, it is tearing you apart. God demands perfection. But you're not perfect. And so he sent his son, the one who is confronting this man, the one who is having compassion on this man. He sent this very son into the world to die in your place. Because, see, the Bible tells us that the sin that consumes your heart is killing you. It's killing you physically. It's killing you spiritually. It's killing you because it's punishment from God for your sin. And so Christ came and took that punishment on himself for you. And the Bible tells us that if we repent of that sin that consumes us, We turn from it. We turn to Christ, believing that his death and his resurrection give us salvation. And he will receive us. He will forgive us. And as he did with this man, he will redeem our heart and he will transform our life. See, some of you are here this morning and you've never encountered this You've never encountered the the fact that sin consumes your life. You've never encountered the fact that sin controls you. Coming to church is not enough. Trying to live a good life is not enough. Sin owns you. And you can only be bought back from sin through the redemptive power of Christ. Friends, if Christ has done that for you, if he's redeemed your heart and transformed your life, why would you want to keep that a secret? Why would you want to hide that? I'll close with this. I was talking to a man who I don't know. I've only met him one time. I bought a video game from him. That's the only connection I have with him. And I was talking to him yesterday, and he was mentioning to me about, we were talking about me buying another video game from him. And he asked if I could meet him today. He said he would be at the place we had met before between 9 and 10 that he went to a Bible study there. I said, well, I I can't come between 9 and 10. It's not really a convenient time. I said, I'll be at church. He said, where do you go to church? I said, well, I'm pastor of First Baptist Church of Iker. And the guy wrote me the weirdest thing back. He said, okay proud of you. And if you're here this morning, I don't have my glasses on, and you happen to come, I'm sorry for singling you out, but uh, it's kind of odd. Maybe it's to the wrong person. You know, maybe he's proud of somebody else, but, but he wrote that back. He said, proud of you. Strange. But what you and I need to realize is that it's opportunities like that where God, because of a video game, one where you shoot people, by the way, just to be clear, I got the opportunity just in a brief instance to connect with that guy. I found out that he, he's involved in a Bible study somewhere. Got to share with him what I do. 
And it makes me realize how many opportunities like that do we get every single day to connect with someone, to just, just, just kind of work it in just a little bit in our, in our conversation, a little bit of what God has done for us, a little bit of our testimony, a little bit about how he has had mercy on us. And the guy says that he's proud of four. He's never heard me preach. He may change his mind if that was the case. But I got a sense that he was just a fellow believer in Christ who was glad somebody would talk about going to church. Somebody would admit to being a pastor. I wonder if the people around you would have that same information. That they would know what Christ has done for you. If, if, I, if we talk to the person who works beside you, if we talk to the, the, the people that you have influence over at your place of work, would they know what Christ has done for you? Would they, would they know the influence that Christ has had on your life, how he's redeemed your heart and transformed your life? Friends, let's not pass that up. Because God has placed us exactly where we are for that very thing. You don't have your job so that you can make money. You don't have your job so that you can provide for your family. I know those things are important. You, you, You have your job. You have your place at your school. You have wherever you are so that you can be a light for Christ. Every other reason is insignificant. If God just wanted us to have full bank accounts, he could make that happen. That wouldn't be a big deal. If God didn't want us to, to, to work, if, if that wasn't important for us to be there, he'd just take care of that. He has you where you are so that you can tell others what Christ has done for you and how he has shown you mercy. If you don't know him this morning, I encourage you to consider what sin really does to your heart. But how powerful his redemption is. But most of you in here, you know Christ. Your heart's been redeemed. Your life has been radically transformed. You, you think about all the places you could have been, all the things that could have happened, all the things that you used to do that Christ has delivered you from. And so I would ask you, do the people around you know what Christ has done for you? Because that's how we have an impact. This man goes and people marvel at his testimony. I want to promise you that in 2015, even if your testimony doesn't seem that impressive, with the way people are hurting and struggling, the the way their families are broken and their relationships are broken and their their finances are broken, the way way people are, are discouraged about the way the world is going, if you are able to share with them what Christ has done for you, They're going to marvel. And Christ is going to do great things. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have brought us together this morning. That we have the opportunity to hear your word to sing together, to fellowship together. God, I thank you that though we are trapped in sin, you redeem the hearts of sinners. God, I'm glad that when you redeem our hearts, you transform us. But God, I'm burdened by how often our transformation does not lead to us sharing what you have done. Lord God, I know there are those here this morning who don't know you. God, who are hurting. God, who are, who are trapped in their sin. They're, they're, they're trapped in desperation. They, they don't have any hope. Lord God, I pray that you would just speak to their hearts right now. God, help them. Allow them to see. God, how much they need you. 
God, allow them to, to know. God, allow them to know how, God, how truly desperate their situation is. Lord God, I pray that as we, we sing this morning, as we pray this morning, God, that our hearts would be stirred to take the good news of what you have done for us God, and share it with those that you have given us, those around us, those with whom we have influence. God, I just pray that we would, God, be faithful to share, God, about the mercy you've had in our life with so many who need mercy themselves. Lord God, we thank you for all that you have done for us your mercy and your compassion. We ask these things this morning in Christ's name. Amen. If you would stand with me, we're going to sing. And as we do, I want to encourage you to pray that God would show you those opportunities that you have to share what he has done with others. We see people around us all the time that are struggling and hurting. I think a word of what God has done for us would mean so much to them in encouraging them to know of the goodness and mercy of Christ. Would you respond this morning as we sing?